Hi, I'm Josh, and welcome to the Wild Nature Photography Podcast, the podcast that talks the art and craft of nature photography. It's the 23rd of June, 2021, and this is podcast number six. And we have just uh, had a very nice frost and uh, some very nice morning light here this morning, a little taste of winter. I can't remember having frosts uh, on a regular basis since I was a very young kid, so nice to see a little bit of real winter here in Melbourne where I live and, and not just rain. We've also had some more snow up on the Alps as well, which is, uh, which is very good. And hopefully I'll be able to get up there in, in a week or so and do a little bit of winter photography. Uh, now, speaking of which, um, we are going to be talking on this, uh, on this podcast episode. I'm going to be answering some of the questions I didn't get around to on, uh, to answering when I did the winter wildlife photography webinar for Ben Q. And we'll come to that in a minute. For those of you who might have missed that webinar, it's now been uploaded to YouTube and um, I'll put a link for for that in the show notes. So if you missed it and you're interested in tuning in, um, you can um, you can find that there. It went a little over an hour. I had, did have a little technical hiccup at the beginning with screen sharing. For some reason, it uh, just didn't want to work. But we were able to work around that and um, get screen sharing going. So I was able to show some photographs and, and, and talk about winter wildlife photography. So if you're interested in checking that out, I'll put the link in the show notes. And the topic of today's podcast, of course, is we're going to be answering some of the questions that I just ran out of time to answer uh, during the webinar. We ran a little bit over as it was. Uh, In other news, um, my 2022 expedition to photograph Arctic fox in winter is now sold out. If you missed out on that and you're interested in coming with me in, in the future, I have just put dates up for 2023 in February. Those are on my website. I'll also put a link to that in the show notes as well. If you're interested in that, you can check that out. And the only last thing today uh, from the news perspective is I've also just finished reviewing uh, the new BenQ SW271C uh, photographic monitor. Now, I had previously reviewed the SW, uh, the predecessor, the SW271, some time ago, and I really found it to be a superb performer, just exceptional value for money. And the new model really builds on uh, builds on the previous release and offers uh, new features, brings brings it up to date. Really, still offers uh, incredible performance. Um, I think at the price point, it's probably unbeatable. So, if you're interested in checking out that review, I'll also put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, that might be worth your time. I do think, you know, if you're in the market for a photographic monitor today, uh, it's pretty hard to go past uh, the BenQ uh, as value for money. So that aside, let's um, let's move on. And I just want to address some of the questions that, that came up uh, during the chat and the webinar, but I just didn't get a chance to answer. The, there were too many questions and I just simply, <laughs> simply ran out of time, unfortunately. Um, and we did lose a few minutes with that technical glitch at the beginning. So one of the questions that I got asked um, was, if I could only bring or buy one lens, what would it be? Would it be a 400 millimeter or a 600 millimeter for wildlife in winter? It's a good question. And the answer is, it sort of depends a little bit uh, on a number of different factors. The, The first one, I guess, is what is going to be your primary target species? Because the lens that I usually take with me uh, is very dependent upon what it is I'm going to go and photograph. Now, I'm fortunate in that I own both a 400mm 2.8 and a 600mm f4, so I have the luxury of choice. Now, I understand not everybody can do that, so I'll give you my thoughts on which one you should buy, um, sort of by a process of deduction, really. Um, I think that's the best way to go. You know, typically I'm using my 600 millimeter when I need to photograph either very small species, uh, small birds and things like that, 
or large apex predators that it's too dangerous to get close to, like polar bears. And those are my two primary reasons that I go for the 600 millimeter, and often even with the converter as well, so a 1.4 to get me out to 840 millimeters. That can really help with keeping a safe distance between you know yourself and a polar bear or a lion or whatever it is that you might be going to photograph. Or it can also be very good at getting you in nice and close on a very small subject like small birds. Um, so that's what I, my primary use for the 600. Now the 400 2.8, I will tend to use for pretty much everything else. So any any subject that I can quite easily approach and get fairly close to, um, penguins would be a good example. When I still want to maintain some telephoto compression um, in my photograph, but I got the luxury of being able to get quite close to the subject. Uh, that's uh, anything like that. I'll, I'll use 400 millimeters for. Um, Irrespective of what lens I take, I will always take a teleconverter, a 1.4, and sometimes even a 2x teleconverter with me. So I think if you could only buy one lens, I would probably be inclined to buy a 400mm f2.8. Now, a, a 400 2.8 with a 1.4 teleconverter is going to get you out to 560mm or close enough to 600 millimeters anyway, um, and still be plenty fast in low light. So it's a fantastic option. Uh, if you were to go with the 600 with a 1.4, obviously you can get out to 840 millimeters. So again, you've got that extra reach there. But again, it's really t- uh, target and species dependent. And I think, you know, the 400 is just that little bit more versatile than the 600 millimeter. So that would probably be my go-to lens. And also being faster, uh, being an f2.8 lens as well, uh, means that you're going to be able to use it in, you know, even when light levels get very, very low. So I think the 400 2.8 is good. Uh, 1.4 teleconverter in your pocket, always handy to have. And then on top of that, you can also always crop a little bit, particularly if you're shooting um, high megapixel camera. And if you listen to my podcast on how many megapixels are enough, I actually talked about cropping power and that being one of the real reasons to have more megapixels. So uh, if you are shooting a higher megapixel camera, that's another reason you might be able to get away with a 400 2.8, even for some larger uh, apex predators that you don't want to get too close to because you can always crop a little bit and, and throw some pixels away. So that's kind of my thought process on on 400 and 600 um, I do sometimes travel with both, although international travel on airlines with two big telephoto lenses like that it can be a little bit problematic. Not so much the weight these days. Uh, the weight in the Mark III versions that I'm shooting from Canon is a lot less than what they used to weigh, but just the, the sheer bulk of them uh, with their large front elements, getting them on and off aircraft, it, it takes up a lot of space. So uh, although I travel with both, I try to avoid it if I can. Um, Almost all the um, Arctic Fox photographs I've done have been with either 300 or 400 millimeter. Some I have done with 600. Um, all my Palace Cat photography was done with 600 millimeter. Again, that's a species that was quite hard to get close to. So uh, I didn't know when I went to photograph Palace Cat how close I would be able to get to them. So hence I took the 600 millimeter. Um, but again, it's very much target and species dependent. If you're doing the African wildlife uh, type safari, you might find a zoom actually could work better there depending on you know how far off road the driver can potentially get and how close they can get you to the subject but i think you know if you're looking for one or the other today a 400 or a 600 i would probably lean towards the 400 unless your primary target species are very small birds or very large apex predators uh, those are the two primary reasons again i, I go towards the, the 600 um, 
So hopefully that's addressed that question. The next question I had was, do I typically use manual focus or autofocus when I'm photographing wildlife um, in the field? The answer is almost always autofocus. Um, the autofocus in uh, the Canon 1DX Mark III's is so incredible. Uh, it just, I find it very rarely misses um, and just reacts much faster than I can. There are times that I will use manual focus uh, if I am pre-focusing for uh, a bird in flight or, um, or a situation like, such as that, I, I will switch to manual focus. Or if for some reason the camera is having trouble focusing on the subject, maybe, for example, I'm photographing an Arctic fox in a very heavy blizzard and I'm struggling with focus grabbing the snow all the time, uh, sometimes then I'll, I will shift to manual focus. But almost all the time, you know, I can fix that problem by changing the focus, autofocus modes. So in the Canon, in Canon land at least, there's a number of different focus modes that you can choose from um, depending on the conditions. And sometimes just changing mode will, will solve the problem. But I found shooting Arctic Fox in winter of 2020 uh, just before the COVID lockdown with the new Mark III cameras that the autofocus was so good, I just had no reason to go to to manual at all. And that was in you know extremely high winds and, and blowing snow. So uh, almost always autofocus nowadays for me. The, the autofocus is just so good in these modern cameras. And now, especially in the mirrorless cameras with eye, eye focus for even animals and birds, I think the argument for going to manual is, uh, is reducing all the time. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the other questions I didn't get time to answer, what is my maximum ISO that I'll use when I'm photographing in the field? Uh, I don't really have a maximum. Uh, the maximum I will use is what I need to get the photograph. So if I'm photographing and it's starting to get dark and I'm finding I'm going to have to bump up the ISO, typically I'll try to avoid going above 6400 if I can. However, if it starts to get really, really dark and I'm pushing up above 6400, I will go there if I need to. But my preference at that point is usually to shift gears a little bit and to start to photograph slow shutter speed. So I'll go for a more art type look. I'll try and uh, use uh, panning with the subject if the subject is moving uh, and I will go for motion blur so that, uh, so that I'm controlling the noise but I'm still being able to photograph if you like. But I, as I say, I will push above 6400 if I have to. I typically find, again, on, on the 1DX Mark III's, there really isn't any need for noise reduction below about ISO 3200, um, maybe a tiny bit at 1600, um, but certainly nothing at 800 is required whatsoever. So, um, again, modern cameras, the uh, high ISO capabilities are getting so good that you can, uh, you can really start to push the boundaries and the limits. Now, this will also depend on your individual camera, of course, and how many, how many megapixels are in that camera. Again, if you listen to the webinar I did on how many megapixels is enough, uh, I talk about the relationship between megapixels and noise. And really, this is a signal-to-noise ratio. So as you increase the megapixels in a camera, you also increase the noise. Uh, and this is just a, a matter of physics. It has to do with how hard it is for the photons to get into the well of the sensor. So there's a balancing act there between the number of megapixels you want to have and the high ISO performance that you're going to be able to get from that camera. Um, yeah, you need to sort of find something that's going to work for your style of photography, whether you'd like to do a lot of very low light work. And I typically find that I am working in low light conditions a lot, even in winter. You know, in, one of the nice things about winter photography when you're shooting in the snow is that snow is white and it's highly reflective. So typically you can work quite late into the evening uh, and still have enough light to photograph. Um, 
And of course, um, you can push the ISO up as well, so you can maintain shutter speed, but it's always a balancing act between ISO and shutter speed with wildlife. Okay, let's shift gears a moment and just talk about um, uh, bird photography because this, this question was asked a lot in the webinar. How do you improve your bird photography, especially with birds in flight? And the short answer to that is practice, <laughs> a lot of practice. So when I, when I first started photographing uh, birds in flight, I, I really sucked at it. I, I just couldn't get anything sharp. I found it very difficult to track birds in flight. Uh, we didn't have, certainly didn't have in the um, smart focus algorithms that we have now in our modern cameras, so it was much more difficult. But really it was about practice. And the best thing that you can do to get better at photographing birds in flight is to keep practicing photographing birds in flight. So even if that's just going down to the beach and uh, photographing seagulls as they um, dart over the waves, for example, that is a fantastic way to practice photographing birds in flight. Quite often when I'm doing um, guiding trips to Antarctica and we're sailing across the Drake Passage, and that's a two-day sail from either Ushuaia or, or, um, or Chile, quite often we'll spend quite a bit of time out on the back deck of the ship, if the seas are not too rough, just photographing all the albatross and, and uh, Antarctic birds that prions and what have you that are uh, flying and following the ship. It's a fantastic way to just practice, get your eye in and figure out what actually works because it does take quite a bit of practice to become good at photographing birds in flight. Um, so practice is the first thing. The second thing is it really helps if you know the species uh, and you know the way that particular species behaves. Uh, the more you can learn about a species before you go out and photograph it, the greater the chance you've got of getting a really good photograph of that particular animal. You can predict its, its behavior to some degree. So, for example, if you're photographing birds from the back of the ship, as I often am on the way down to Antarctica, and one of the birds that we photograph a lot down there is the black-browed albatross. And I know that the black-browed albatross likes to glide quite low over the water at, at the back of the ship. So I can wait for it and I can predict its movement. And I know as it gets closer to the ship, it's going to bank left or bank right. And usually it will dip its wing uh, and indicate which way it's going to go. So I will look for that and then I'll be able to follow, follow the bird and predict its movements. And if you can predict your subject's movements, things become a lot easier. Um, not just for birds, but this actually applies to, to any wildlife at all. Uh, if you can predict its movement, you have a far better chance of being able to get sharp photographs, uh, which is why when I'm going out to photograph a new species for the first time, I'll often spend quite a bit of time doing research on that species. I'll read about it. I'll try and learn as much as I can about it. Uh, when I went out to start photographing uh, Arctic fox, uh, before I started my book project, uh, on the Arctic fox in winter, I bought all the books I could on uh, on the Arctic fox and I started to read them so that I could learn as much as I could about the animal. I didn't know, for example, that the, the foxes don't den in winter, that they just will sleep on the snow. So I, perhaps I would have spent quite a lot of time looking for a den had it, if I had not known that they didn't use them. So knowing your subject and knowing how it behaves and knowing its habitat, all of these factors uh, contribute towards being able to get better photographs of them. And especially with birds, also practice. Practice, practice, and practice. And experiment a little bit too. Try different shutter speeds. Try uh, try different focus modes on your camera. And then see what works best. Um, you know, I'll do this a lot when I'm photographing birds in flight because typically I like to have a little 
bit of movement or a sense of movement in my photographs. So I will look for a shutter speed that will freeze the head of the bird, but will have some blur in the wings. And that just gives us the sense of movement in the photograph that helps to bring it to life because we can't normally do movement in, in photography because we don't have the benefit of movement. We're not video. We, we have to do it in a still image. And that's much more difficult. So motion blur is a great way to do that. So I like to try and incorporate some, some motion blur, particularly in, in birds. If you look at a bird in flight uh, with the human eye, we don't see a completely sharp wing at 2,000th of a second. We see the wing as a blur because it's moving so quickly. So when you see it blurred in a photograph, it also becomes a very natural looking image as well. Okay, the, um, the last question I, I want to answer today that I didn't get a chance to answer in this webinar was, what am I using? What software am I using for reducing noise in my photographs today? Um, yep, yeah, I'm using Topaz Denoise in, um, at the moment, in, but I'm really only using that very selectively and only if I really need to reduce noise in an image. Um, to, and as I said earlier, you know, that really only happens if I'm shooting at ISO 1600 or 3200 or, or more. If it's under that, I just don't bother with noise reduction. And the reason for that is, is I just can't see it in the file. Uh, certainly in the 1DX Mark III file, it just isn't there. And certainly it doesn't translate into the print either. So there just isn't a need to, to use it. I will say, and I will caution that with all denoise software, uh, what it really is, is digital smoothing. So it's removing... Uh, effectively, it makes the image softer. So you need to be very careful with how much of it you apply. Too much noise reduction will make an image look very fake and plasticky. Uh, so a little bit goes a long way with noise reduction. So just experiment, do a before and after side-by-side -side comparison, and just make sure you're not applying too much noise reduction because too much noise reduction will be worse than the noise itself, uh, and you want to avoid that at, at all costs. Okay, so I think we'll... We'll wrap up uh, the podcast there for, for today. I'm Josh. It is the 23rd of June, uh, 2021, and I look forward to seeing you out in the field.